Juno Diaz is the author of Drown, and his fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, The Parish of You, and The Best American Short Stories. Born in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, and raised in New Jersey. He now lives in New York City and is a professor at MIT. And of course, he is the author of The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. Yes. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Oscar is the Juno who didn't give in to peer pressure to be cool. Storytelling is a way to give voice to lost life, fathers, those who've been done injustice, and the you who might have been. Agree with that? Yeah, no, I mean, in one way it is, I guess. You know, the thing about characters is that anything that you say about your characters, how they came about, who they really are, is entirely provisional, it's entirely shorthand. The reality of the characters, it's, you know, we think we know where they come from, but we assume we know, but the more I look at this character, there's as much of mystery to me as I think he would be to anyone. Like, where do people come from? What the hell do I know? But certainly I began, Oscar, with this idea of addressing the nerdy self that I was as a youth and I abandoned because I wanted to be cool. And you were... Or you're angry with yourself for, for caving, for I'm copping angry. out? Angry is too old. Yeah. You know, I'm 40. I'm angry about real serious things of myself now. But these days I've learned to be a little bit more forgiving. You're a kid, man. You know, you want to fit in. I yeah. can't blame myself for being such a coward. And, you know? Yeah. It's just, we're, we're weak, we're human. Um, no, it's more like I wanted to understand both the kid who caved and the kid who didn't and not be sentimental about it because I don't think either of them ended up well you know I think life is a challenge for both and I just wanted to give just uh, you know give a real sympathetic view of how in some ways there's nothing idealistic and there's nothing righteous about either decision mm-hmm. it's just human I mean I'm reminded of uh, Frostbomb yeah you, as a novelist in a way you you can go back and take that other path. Yeah, no, of course. Which I suppose is kind of the, the thrill of it. Thrill of it, but also why it's so terrifying. It's most of us would rather keep our past and the paths that we have not taken, we took, or we didn't take, unexamined. Yeah. You know, it's there's a wonderful, there's a wonderful energy to return, but there's also a wonderful pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a pretty painful time of life for sure. Yeah, I mean, God. If adolescence was any harder, I, 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 I don't think we could have made it. Yeah. It's almost as if they made it just as humanly hard as it could be. It's as if you, if you can get through that, then you're going to get through the next 40, 50 years. Whew. Yeah. That's remarkable. You talked about the challenge of creating a unique character, and what you what you came up with was this guy who loves words and language and uh, can't understand those who don't share his passion so he's socially inept he's not, as you put it cagey and aware of social rules which is how so many in the United States act you must love this character well again I think love is too strong, I think that the whole thing is that he's he's a complicated mixed bag. He's completely inflexible. You know, I mean, who likes that? 
yeah. he's completely impenetrable you can't give this guy good advice even if you paid him to take it and you know I mean he's an extreme kind of a character I think that I I see what's good in him but I also kind of shake my head at him a little bit you know um, I mean there's other characters who I felt like for all their you know it's weird because it is for me hard to love my characters what I tend to do is that I tend to feel great compassion towards them the love it's tough man they're not even real I mean I hate to say that you know but I, I feel great compassion for them and, and, and they move me deeply but I don't know I've, I've been in love so few times in my life that it's so hard to imagine that it's not a person that I'm in love with yeah, we could get into a nice discussion about what love is so no I certainly I probably am being too literal you know yeah. being too literal it's, it's not unheard of with me you know I think we're all have our little gaps so you're bringing up another one because gaps are really important for you to fill silences in the historical record sure and to keep them present you know, to mark a gap is almost as important as filling it, and in many cases, more important. Because they're gaps that we're never going to refill, but we spend a tremendous amount of energy pretending they're not there. You know? Yeah, well, like, for example, racism or dictatorships or... We're just like, what was the personality of your great-grandfather? You know, there's all these kind of gaps that we have and we just would rather not turn our imagination to them because, again, nothing affronts the remarkable power and the remarkable optimism of the Enlightenment than the concept of a gap that can't be filled. That's an affront to Enlightenment science, Enlightenment philosophy, and yet that's the human. Yes, and yet, though, I mean, isn't, isn't that the spur for the curious? Oh, of course. But I just think that the curious discover always that there's these gaps that will never be filled, which we can never enter. And to actually live in a world where you can sustain, or to have a philosophy where you can acknowledge the existence of such gaps is incredibly hard, humbling. And as historians, it's important to do, because you've got to mark gaps. If you, even if you can't explain or fill them. Because most of the time, people will just say, well, if you can't fill them, then it doesn't matter. We don't need to think about this. But yes, we do. Because sometimes the only thing that's left is the gap. Can we talk in concrete terms? Sure. Which, which part? Let's look at the, the dictatorship in the uh, Dominican Republic. Well, I mean, of course. I was just thinking of the new world. Like... All the people who were murdered and thrown overboard, all the people who were worked to death, all the people who were bred to death um, in what we call the New World Project, you know, through slavery, um, we're never recovering them. We're never going to know their names. We're never going to know their personalities. We're never going to know who they were, what they were. We don't even know their number. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's, there's an enormous gap that it's like, well, we can't really fill it, so let's not think about it. And yet that gap is in some ways at the core of what we call our identity. You know, it's, it's there. When we reach down at what we it's are... repressed in a way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, so fiction uh, has been described, and in fact, uh, I was talking with Sasha Hemon, mm -hmm. 
his latest book is, is about a lost life and fiction plays a role in filling that gap or bringing that lost life to life again in his work is that what I, you're doing I, I don't know about that again I don't want to speak to Sasha's project at all I think that what's up with someone like me is that I'm far more willing to admit the limitations of this project this book keeps coming back and back and back to the empty page to the página en blanco to the gap to the unknowable I think that this book does more of an effort to undermine the extension of the Enlightenment dream that everything could be filled in whether it's through science or through fiction because that's just a, a corollary now what before would be science now we're like well no no fiction can bring it back to life mm-hmm. this book keeps saying even fiction can't do it and that's very different than and most Enlightenment you know pursuits and the book pessimistic keeps, no I think pessimistic is no I think pessimistic is the illusion that that I cut your arm off and that we can wish it that arm back mm-hmm. you know that we can sit around and like sweet talk it so that the, the, the blow is gone I think that there's nothing more optimistic and more loving than to be able to see the cracks in a thing mm-hmm. and to still find beauty in it I think we're so busy trying to fill the cracks in because they affront us yeah it's a bit like any kind of therapy Let's say, for example, you reunite with your father after having been separated for Mm. 20 years, and you have a wonderful time with your father uh, in the the last four or five years of their life. That Mm -hmm. doesn't repair the fact that he abandoned you. It doesn't disappear. It makes you feel happy in the present. So what what you're saying is living in that pain is... No, no, no. Both experiences exist simultaneous yeah and the idea is not to not to erase one experience over the next your happiness is real just because you had 20 years of pain doesn't alter your happiness but those 20 years of pain are real too mm-hmm. and just because you're happy now you can't erase them you can recontextualize them you can they can have a different place in your life but I guess my thing is is that there's so much erasure going on as it is. Life does such a great job of mm. taking things off the table. Mm. Why are we helping it? Well, it's the pleasure-pain principle. You're you're running away from what hurts you. Sure. And hiding yourself in popular culture. Poor Oscar's biggest thing is that he does that. Is that he takes something that Oscar, you know, his his comic books, his fantasy novels, his science fiction, his apocalyptic movie. He takes something that was a survival strategy that gave him comfort and makes it into a full out way of a way to avoid life mm. mm-hmm. and he discovers very quickly that you can't do that yeah. you know that there's limitations in sealing yourself up in the thing that allows you to survive this is a, a moral that uh, you need to address the gaps in your life and your country's history in order to be healthy? I'd say it seems to me it feels it. But I mean, it, I think it's an argument for just a point of view. I mean, the thing is, is that no novel is that holistic. Mm-hmm. Novels are not Bibles. They're not Korans. They're not arguing for you to have a total approach to life, which is what these books argue. These yeah. books are total mm-hmm. approaches to life. This is just one arrow that you can put in the quiver along with a bunch of other arrows. 
Like, other respect, like what are the other arrows? The same arrow that I'm critiquing. You can have the enlightenment idea mm-hmm. sitting next to this idea, mm-hmm. because each one doesn't need to eliminate the other. It's not a, it's not a, a zero sum game. Mm-hmm. It's like some you need, and every now and then this one will be useful. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying this is going to be the always the hammer you're going to use for every nail. The idea is to just have as many strategies as possible. I mean, this narrator proves it. This narrator throws the kitchen fucking sink at this book. He uses everything. He uses reportage. He uses anthropology. He uses history. He uses memoir. He uses fiction, science fiction, genre, you know, confession. You name the form, epistolary. He throws the whole fucking thing. It's, I think his argument as a narrator would say that, you know, one strategy, no matter how right it is, is always going to be wrong. It's like the best presidents. They bring in all sorts of advisors that give them all sorts of contradictory advice. Yeah, man, fuck it. you got to get it along with people. Yeah. You know? Okay, let's talk about 9-11 and uh, Americans' wide-eyed deer in the headlights, why don't they like us? Reaction. Oh, I love it. You know, because, you know, right after 9 11, for those of us who were in the country, it's like, and maybe people outside of the country, the first reaction of everybody was simultaneously two, it was nested. It's like two, two little cherries on the same stem, you know, absolutely poisonous cherries. One was, why don't they like us? Why did this happen? And the other one is, I hope we bomb them into the Stone Age. And I think that it's hilarious because there's this rubric, this kind of covering skin of of high school popularity contest that geopolitical complexities can be reduced into, you know, approval or disapproval. Why don't they like us? Motherfucker, this is not about high school, whether we're liked or not. This is about very complicated issues. And the other one is that the United States has deeply embedded in its culture genocidal impulses. My country, you can provoke into a genocidal war on a rumor. Yeah, I, I think a distinction should be made between my country and the leaders of my country. That's too easy. That That's too easy. I mean, I just think that I, even though I vote against the leaders of my country, even though I'm as fucking far left from the mainstream of the United States, I live a very cushy, implicated life. And I think that the thing is, it's, it's too easy to be like, oh, it's them. You know? We have, a, in the United States, a very strong genocidal impulse. It's been there since the beginning. Genocidal or competitive? No. Genocidal's I mean, a bit extreme, isn't it? Really? Since the, the country's founded on genocide. It's founded on... Red by pop. Yeah. Sorry. First, I had to kill everybody. You know, well, they had to show the Brits that uh, they weren't going to be pushed around. No, I meant to kill all the native people. Yeah, see, um, I don't, that doesn't even register. That's, uh, how, that's bing, how sad that is. But bing, yeah. there you have it. Yeah. There's a reason why the United States is will go to war, will condemn someone to hundreds of years of consequences and suffering based on a whisper, on a rumor. We went to war in Iraq on a rumor, bro. Vietnam, turns out, we went to war on a suspicion. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's about, I don't know if you saw the film, uh, Why We Fight, excellent film. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's worth seeing. It's a doc, isn't it? Uh, sorry? Isn't it a documentary? It's a documentary, right. yeah. yeah. It's all about the military-industrial complex. Eisenhower articulated, and he warned 
he warned the American people about this being the determinant of sure. future but it's all governmental linked. decisions. But think about how linked it is. I mean, do you really think our warlike nature has nothing to do with our deep history? Do you think that the incredible violence in the United States has nothing to do with, you know, all sorts of things? I mean, our, willing, our willingness to go to war is unbelievable. You would think we're just sitting around waiting for it. I mean, fuck, man, I'm only 40. I, how many fucking conflicts have I been in? You know, a witness to. You know, it's a lot of fucking conflicts. You know, this country's always fucking picking a fight. Well, where does that come from? I mean, it's funny you think of Australia being a land of, uh, of convicts. Violent, racist convicts. And yet, last time I looked, Australia certainly does less damage, you know? Well, it's probably because there's less of them, but why? Why? I mean, America, the States isn't a nation of convicts, so where's this, where does this genocidal impulse come from? The only thing I could do is I just say, like, I don't, I'm no expert, I would just say Richard, I agree with Richard Slotkin's arguments in Gunfighter Nation, you know, and in Regeneration to Violence that our deep history continues to affect us to this day. You know, that the traumas that we've not really dealt with continue to propel us to shape who we are. And that the blindness to that is, what, is what's troubling. Well, it keeps it going. Yeah. I love this quote of yours. Uh, and this, uh, this novel, uh, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar, wow, wow. Mm-hmm. Wayo. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow is, uh... Spanish for wow. Okay. Um, by Gino Diaz. Took you 11 years to write. Sure. And, uh... I'm not sure if you say this in the book or not, but the Dominican Republic is the egg from which the American eagle sprung. That's beautiful. Yeah, but it's true. How's it true? Well, I mean, the first country of the new world. Every institution that the United States would perfect um, and that would launch the United States into a global power was beta tested in the Dominican Republic. You know, the original first draft of what became the United States was the Dominican Republic, the Caribbean. You know, the United States is just the most polished. Oh, no, I'm thinking of, like, our the basic engines. Yeah, the institution of... Um, of uh, the plantation, uh, the institution of like kind of this aggressive military, uh, you know, the institution of this unchecked uh, capitalism, the institution of like this sort of wild individualism, you know, which is actually carries inside of it a lot of other things, you know, this obsessive, almost apocalyptic religiosity. I mean, we can blame it all on the Dominican Republic. But that's, that's, that's a little much. I mean, does anyone like being categorized? Of course not. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know. This, this answer is pretty kind of... It, it's because it's kind of like... You know, there's nothing special about being categorized whether you're on this border or that border. You know, I think that, that question we can just eliminate right away. I think people don't like being categorized at all. I think as a writer, what's fascinating is that we know how to manipulate people's expectations and resistance to categories in ways to produce interesting work. I mean, that's what a character is. A character seems to be a familiar category, but then you suddenly switch it up on people, and if you switch it up in the right way, it suddenly becomes incredibly exciting and interesting. If you switch it up in the wrong way, people say, oh, no, this is not believable. Uh, this character doesn't cohere. So, I mean, that's... You know, that's what it is. I don't think 
one needs to blame, uh, go to the United States to blame for the habit that we all have for categorizing, you know? No, but you live there, and there, you know, you, you're, you're, you're categorized, and doesn't that piss you off? But I mean, any more than anyone else is categorized? Well, like a white guy, I wouldn't be categorized. Sure, except when I call you a white guy, and suddenly, uh, you guys get, like, nervous and antsy, and you're like, it immediately becomes, you know, it becomes an issue. I mean, look, you never it's see changing. Someone. I mean, the, the, the America is changing quite dramatically. The, of course. The but color I, of America. Well, of course. I guess my thing is this, is that I think those are two different uh, sort of things. I think that, um, I think that any community who has been historically simplified, the way that communities of color, the way that immigrants, the way people of African descent have been in the New World, that of course that that's a serious problematic because that's any kind of simplification is dehumanization mm-hmm. and I think that it's it's only right that someone whether they're inside of the dehumanization or they're outside of dehumanization um, take offense to it that wishes to like you know put an end to it um, there's nothing wrong with that I think that that's very natural uh, again I know I'm a little bit not sentimental about it. I look in the Dominican Republic and my other country and that shit happens all the time. Mm-hmm. You know? The poor people are being categorized as dangerous animals so we have to like imprison and create walls between. The Haitian immigrants are considered even more dangerous like uh, a poison, a, a disease, a plague. That's the way that they're uh, uh, represented in the media. That's got to be like taken care of. It's got to be eliminated Gay people in the Dominican Republic are viewed in ways that uh, are so retrograde that they would make the Republican Party's representation of gays look forward, look forward, seem appear forward-looking. So I'm looking at both countries, and I'm like, okay, these both these countries seem to have, at a cultural, societal, political level, a lot, a lot, a lot at stake, and a lot of commitment to dehumanizing people. And as an artist, because you're working in the particular, mm-hmm. you know, what makes uh, my work, if it has any power, powerful, is that it's, it's particularity. And so therefore, as an artist, your medium is nations that, or one of the, the contexts of your work is, is cultures, whether it's the Dominican Republic, the United States, or Canada, that spend a lot of energy simplifying. Yeah. And you are spending a lot of energy trying to write the particular in that context. And showing the, 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 the complication. Certainly. Yeah. And how crazy, how some ways, you know, the, the, the dynamic though is that this is not a parable. You know, as it's discovered in Oscar, is that, in fact, some people who simplify do incredibly well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, live happily and... and yeah, they, if they've got all the answers because they believe in God and they work hard. Sure. And, but there's even like benevolent characters with very impenetrable and simplistic categories and you know they do well and I think it's not so easy even though I personally work against these trends hell man for I wish it could be fable like where it's like mm-hmm. if you have these rock hard categories you're evil and if you don't you're good it's 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 what again as an artist it's, and as a person growing up which you quickly discover is that these things are not so easy um, okay. you you uh, you must have some faith in the system. I mean, you got the Pulitzer Prize. 
But what, which system? What do you mean? It's the overall the country. You mean the United States? Yeah, the United States. Or the American Republic? Well, no, I mean, I mean, look. Have you gotten anything comparable to the Pulitzer and the American Republic? Oh, like anyone would know, you know. Not yet, but it's on down there. Sure, sure. But let me let me just answer the, each question as they come. I think that what uh, I think that that's got nothing to do with. Uh, in other words, receiving prizes and accolades or being rich, you know, suddenly I'm not, but like making millions of dollars doesn't mean... It gives you notoriety. But what I'm saying is, so if I can answer the question, just that one, and then I'll get to the next one. What I mean is that it's just... Uh, it doesn't mean that you're not critical-minded. And I think that it's a very standard confusion that people have to think that just because you're critical-minded about where you're living, that that somehow speaks to what you think about the place you're living. In other words, I'm incredibly hard on the United States and incredibly hard on the American Republic. But that, to me, doesn't say anything about my relationship to both countries. I feel like it's my civic duty to try to make both countries better. But I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, you, 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 you evidently have a love for both countries. But what I'm saying is, your criticism of those countries is making some headway, which I think should should make you feel pretty good. No, I don't think that's true at all. I think that the success of an individual means nothing. But the success of your message... Sorry to interrupt again, but the, 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 your message is, is being... Is being listened to by more people. I'm an artist, bro. The thing for me is that what we're talking about, I feel like this is two different kinds of categories, different kinds of questions. For me, what's the, for me, I will be celebrating not when a person gets a literary prize, when communities are being more successful, when these systems are more amenable to communities, to collectives. I think both Canada, the United States, and we can throw in the Dominican Republic. Um, individuals can find remarkable success in all these places, but that's not my level of concern. Yeah, but I don't. Maybe I'm not making myself clear. Or it seems to me that just you win the prize because of the fact you win the prize. More individuals in these countries are going to be exposed to your message of complication mm -hmm. as a result they may be able to empathize with the people that they currently dislike and as a result you're going to change the country maybe one person at a time Yes, yeah, I, I don't think that's the way culture works, but it's okay, I mean my opinion is that we've been giving these prizes out for hundreds of years, it hasn't made us more human I mean, we're, you know... It's a choice between... I mean, they happen to choose your sure. story. But, but I guess what I'm saying is, like, basically Joseph Conrad dealt with this idea in Heart of Darkness. Um, making more art, having more art recognized doesn't transform people to less savage, you know, or societies to less savage. See, I think we can give these prizes to the cows come home. We're, we're going to say the same? Human nature is not going to No, I think that what helps change, uh, help us change, are not these prizes. Okay. You know, I think that there's, there's got to be more societal work to be done. 
Oh yeah, you don't want to. You can see a prize as being a sop to someone who's. Oh yeah, look, Juno's done a nice job there. He's saying what we we all want to hear. Well, but even if but, it's not a sop or it is a sop, my question is this: giving literary prizes in all our countries has not changed the material conditions of anyone in these countries. I can say that with all confidence, and we could just summon up a bunch of goddamn teams of economists, economists and artists who will prove this. And my question is that these two things are disconnected. I, I think that making people more compassionate individuals is good at an individual level, and I think it's necessary for us to survive and to be human. But I'm much more dubious of how that has an impact at the material conditions of real communities in the real world. You know, I mean, we supposedly have incredibly compassionate people in Canada and the United States, and yet both countries practice some of the most violent hierarchical capitalism available to the world. I mean, you know, we're we're incredibly gentle comparison. I mean, for real, you're far more likely to have some trouble in more brutalized societies than you are in these two, and yet we practice the worst form of capitalism possible. So I guess... My a, there is a line somewhere, I don't know who said it, but it's, I can love my neighbor as a brother intellectually, but, uh, but, but in real life, I hate him. Something's going on. Yeah. Something is deeply going on. Yeah. Just, uh, just to close, sure. you could uh, move, uh, move from, from that... Uh, that sort of social level to very specifically your your novel has been uh, and I'm speaking with uh, Juno Diaz the novel is The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow has been praised as being vibrant and full of energy and very funny and I just uh, I just wonder how you created this energy and the humor, if you could give us a, how you, what did you do to get this? Yeah, no, it's, it's a lot of rewriting. What's so interesting is what things that seem most organic, like quote-unquote energy, quote-unquote humor, these things seem like to be natural byproducts of the work. In fact, they're the biggest artifacts. They're things that you have to shape, things that you have to work on. It, it was an enormous pain in the ass to make this book feel like crackling with energy if I could put that in quotes you know it's something that I literally it's, it was, it's an illusion that you work on and you work on I think it took me had I not been trying to be funny simultaneously with heartbreaking the book would have not required so many rewrites but it's something that you just keep processing and you keep struggling over I mean sounds like Flaubert oh god I only wish but yeah certainly you know, certainly. A couple of things, just specifics. No, that's not a bang on the door. No. Uh, specifics. I, I, you know, there's repetition in the book, and I think that gives it energy. Sure, but no, of course. But that's repetition of words, and you know, in one paragraph. Sure, but you you make that you start figuring out that that will help you. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, certain symmetries. People respond well to certain symmetries, but constructed them a pain in the ass. Um, you know, there's like kind of picking the right words. You put four or five kind of, uh, you know, words that kind of fight against each other but work together. Wow, you suddenly get a sentence that cooks off the page. But that takes forever to do, you know. It's, it's interesting. It's like you can get a lot of stuff done 
you can get a real organic feel off a book mm-hmm. by working like a like polishing it up. Yeah, by working like just a brew. That's a knock on the door. That's a knock on the door. Thank you for a great interview. Thank you, sir. Really. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah.